Hi everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. For those watching for the first time, welcome. My name is Dan Pardo, and this is the sweet 16th episode of Pardo's Turn, my weekly Wednesday web series where I analyze a classic show tune from a music director's point of view, and with the help of a special guest, perhaps shed some light on what makes the gems of our musical theater canon so great. Today, I'm very happy to introduce another native of Reading, Pennsylvania, finding success in New York and beyond, my old friend, operatic baritone Timothy McDevitt. With two degrees from Juilliard, Tim has won numerous vocal awards, including the prestigious La Lalenia and Metropolitan Opera competitions. His onstage credits include roles in national and international opera companies, most of which I can't pronounce, as well as musical theater. He was seen in the Emmy-nominated production of Carousel Live at Lincoln Center, The Dreyfus Affair at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Dear Edvard at National Sawdust and Arena Stage, and four productions at New York City Center. Brigadoon, The New Yorkers, Lady Be Good, and Me and My Girl. This year, as a part of Leonard Bernstein's centennial celebration, Tim has sung the role of Riff from West Side Story with both the Philadelphia Orchestra and the NHK Orchestra in Japan. And he's sung Bernstein's Mass with the Chicago Symphony. For today's show, we'll continue to pay tribute to Lenny's lasting legacy with Lucky to Be Me from On the Town. The verse starts out freely, as Gaby recalls, I used to think it might be fun to be anyone else but me. The music has a strong dichotomy from the beginning of the phrase to the end, moving from a playful descending melody that skips back and forth over the tonic to a single repeated note harmonized with a somewhat jarring D major chord, which in the key of F is not a diatonic triad. It's out of place, like he's been transported someplace different. And if you continue reading the lyrics penned by Comden and Green, it makes perfect sense. I thought that it would be a pleasant surprise to wake up as a couple of other guys. He continues, but now that I've found you, I've changed my point of view, which sounds like it should lead right into the chorus, but there's still one phrase left. And now I wouldn't give a dime to be anyone else but me. He recalls his opening line of the song, but now he's been elevated into a new key. He's still himself, but for the first time, he's actually happy about it. And why not? He has a date with Miss Turnstiles. The refrain of the song is charming, alternating between exuberant phrases that leap up and down, and the unpretentious hook, I'm so lucky to be me. The simplicity of the title phrase reads as humility, which, to the audience, makes this somewhat bashful sailor that much more likable. He's not saying that he's extraordinary or the king of the world, to name a couple of other musical theater song titles. It's like what he says in the bridge. He is simply thunderstruck at the change in his luck. All these good things are happening to him, and he doesn't know why. The bridge carefully navigates its way up the chromatic scale, a series of pitches that are all a half-step apart from each other. In Western music, it's the smallest interval there is, and to me, it seems that Gaby is so shocked by his newfound fortune that he literally has to take baby steps to make sure he doesn't screw it up. He even sings a few repeated notes when going up a half-step is too far or too risky. And after the first phrase is finished, and he reaches the top of his melody, he jumps back down an octave and does it all again. It's like he couldn't believe what he had accomplished, and had to do it again just to make sure. But once he knows, he knows. When the refrain returns for the last time, Bernstein built in a direct modulation, that is, one that comes out of nowhere, 
No chords that pivot in a new direction. No musical wind-up before the pitch, so to speak, that telegraphs that the key change is coming. And it's not just a half-step or even a whole step this time. Gaby jumps a full minor third to the key of A-flat. After singing the majority of the song in the moderately low tessitura, that is, a range typical for a Broadway baritone, the melody soars to a high G, a money note for a true tenor. Now, granted, in the context of the show, Gaby's being supported by the ensemble at that point, but even his high F is exciting before relaxing once again into the simple hook, extended this time for the tag. I could laugh out loud, I'm so lucky to be me. Hey Tim. Hi Dan. Thanks for joining me. Thanks this is really great. Me. What yeah. a nice reunion. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited that we're doing some Bernstein, not only because it's the centennial and it's a great time to celebrate his body of work, but also he kind of reminds me of you in the sense that you kind of started out in musical theater and then went to Juilliard, and now you're kind of transitioning back and doing both just as Bernstein, you know, kind of kept going back and forth from classical music to, to the stage. Yep. Um, what uh, what's the impact of his work on your career? Um, well, this year especially, mm -hmm. um, basically every opera company, orchestra, classical music organization, a lot of theater companies are producing Bernstein in honor of the centennial. Mm -hmm. um, I, of course, have known his music my whole life, and in college, I was lucky enough to work with Steve Blyer a lot, who was a protege of his, and, and he runs the New York Festival of Song. Mm -hmm. And it was then that I started to really get to know his work. Um, Jamie Bernstein, his daughter, was around uh, with Nyphos a bit and got to meet her and, and just started to learn about how it was possible to have a classical background, have classical training, mm -hmm. but get to live in both worlds. Yeah. And... I feel like every year that goes by, I'm still learning something about him and a new discovery. And um, in 2015, I did Bernstein's Mass with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and I know it's such a cliche to say that a job can change your life, but it really did. Yeah. And uh, getting to know that body of work with the cast that I worked with and our director, Kevin Newbery, or Yannick Nizé-Séguin, conducted, it was this like mind-blowing, life-changing experience. And uh, we got to record it for Deutsche Grammophon, which came out this year. And then I got again to work at the Philadelphia Orchestra in the fall doing West Side Story, mm -hmm. and then uh, did Bernstein's Mass this year in Chicago with the Chicago Symphony and Martin Alsop. So it's like his work just keeps feeding me as an artist. Mm -hmm. Like, And every time I come to it, I learn something new, and I just continue to be in awe of the man that he was and, and how immortal he is in, in his work. As a uh, graduate of Juilliard, does Juilliard as a school kind of have a philosophy of opera versus musical theater? <sighs> That's an interesting question. Um, I don't know right now what it's like. I graduated in 2011 with my mm -hmm. master's in 2009 with my undergrad. And while I was there, there was, people did start to begin to really talk a lot about how um, the career of a modern singer mm -hmm. There are some that are very lucky that just stay in opera, and they're singing at the Met, and they're singing all over the world, and, you know, more power to them. But I would say that most modern singers have to be prepared to do just about everything. Vicki Clark came in and did a master class mm -hmm. when we were there, and it was the first time that the drama division and the opera division joined forces yeah. in putting students in scene work together. So I got to do a scene with... Um, 
a uh, drama student, and I met Mary Mitchell Campbell because of that. She played for it a bit ago. You were saying how now modern singers have to learn how to do a little bit of everything. Working at encores, that has they've, really, they've they've really tested you. They have they have stretched <laughs> that um, that uh, ability of mine. Um, I always danced in college, but I wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And I have had to dance more on the job in my career than, I mean, it's just every time I do a show at Encores or there was a whole season once where I was dancing in every show I was in, in my season. And I I just tap danced for the first time on stage at City Center with like real tap dancers. (laughs) Granted, I had to do about like four counts of eight or something Mm -hmm. like that, but it was terrifying. And have you gone and taken extra dance classes because of these types of jobs? um, There have been a couple times where I'm going in for something and I freak out and then Mm -hmm. I go and I I am not one of those people that takes class regularly and Mm -hmm. I know I should, but I, I learned early on that I was not a dancer and I kind of said like, well, that's not something I'm going to try to be. But even as a musical theater performer, you have a different career than a lot of other musical theater baritones. And you know, even when you do something like The Secret Garden, which you know, had that co-pro in Baltimore and Cincinnati, it, it was through a light opera company, wasn't it? Or? No, it was um, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park and Baltimore okay. Center Stage. Okay, so those were just musical like theater equity companies. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I have to. There have been productions I've done that are opera companies that produce because so many opera companies produce a musical in their season now. Mm-hmm. Most of the most of the regional houses do at least one. Yeah, and. That's a cool experience because I did I did a South Pacific a few years ago mm-hmm. at Ashland Opera and got to do South Pacific unamplified with an orchestra of I think we had thirty five in the pit. Wow. So to do and in a great little jewel box theater, mm-hmm. um, I think we had floor mics for dialogue, but to to sing Younger Than Springtime with a huge orchestra under you and be able to like soar over oh, yeah. that music and not worry about like. Because it's a totally different experience when there's a body mic on you. Sure. You know that they're hearing every teensy little thing. And when you're on Amplified, you can kind of trust that the acoustics are going to be in your favor. Mm-hmm. So one of the great things about Bernstein is how internationally he's known and celebrated. So uh, I know you did a production of West Side Story in Tokyo, was yeah. that, this yeah, past yeah. year? Yeah. Um, what was the reception? Like? It was... First of all, going to Japan was the most amazing experience. If you ever get the chance, I don't know if you've gone twice. You, okay, great. Yeah. So, like, the Jap- Japan was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the orchestra that we were working with there is called the NHK Symphony. Mm-hmm. NHK is a major television network yeah. in Japan. And back in the day when, like, CBS had a studio orchestra, mm-hmm. ABC had a studio orchestra, in Japan, that orchestra then went on to become. They, they moved on from being a TV studio orchestra, and now they're one of the major orchestras in, in Japan. And this was their first time playing a musical, and the excitement around this was mm-hmm. incredible. And the, I mean, there's, it's so hard to find words to describe what it was like to do that there, and I think we were in like a 4,000 seat house or something wow. like that. Sold out performances. Mm-hmm. And, the energy from the players on stage, being so enthusiastic about playing the score. Pavo Yarvi was our conductor, who was out of this world amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you rehearse uh, in Japan? Or in yeah, Japan? we did. We did. So my sister-in-law lives in Japan, and because of that, we've gone a couple times. In this past uh, trip, my wife and I went in February for the Sapporo Snow Festival. Okay. And I don't know if you're aware, but in 1990, Leonard Bernstein started the Pacific. I think it's called the Pacific Music. 
I'll find out what, what it is. It's a big uh, a Pacific Music Festival. Yeah. And one of the main things about the Sapporo Snow Festival is that they make these giant snow sculptures, mm-hmm. like that, you know, that take entire city blocks that are, you know, 30 feet high. Yeah. So in honor of the centennial, and especially them. because of his connection with uh, Sapporo, um, they had a giant uh, sculpture That's of his amazing. honor, which was, which was really cool. Yeah. Because most of the other sculptures were kind of corporate tie-ins, like the Sony would, you know, build one to promote their new Final Fantasy game, yeah. or like a bank would have one. Um, but to see, you know, the people of Japan raise this money to honor, uh, you know, an American who made such an impact in this small yeah. corner of the globe, yeah, it was yeah. really powerful. It was cool because in talking to some of the players, we said, and you know, this is your first time playing this, did you... Do you know the work? Mm-hmm. All of them said, "Oh, we had an LP growing up, or I had the, you know, they all grew up on some version mm-hmm. of West Side Story." Right. But yeah, it was. You know, I was kind of amazed it was the first time they were playing it, but mm-hmm. it was amazing. I used to think it might be fun to be anyone else but me. I thought that it would be a pleasant surprise to wake up as a couple of other guys. But now that I've found you, I've changed my point of view. And now I wouldn't give a dime to be anyone else but me. Thanks again to Tim McDevitt for coming on to the show, and thank you for watching.
Please remember to like, comment, subscribe, and share. We'll see you next week on Pardo's Turn. Bye. I am simply thunderstruck at this change in my luck. Knew at once I was.